You're listening to audio from Restoration Church. If you enjoyed the message and would like to get connected to our church, follow us on social media at Restoration Cambridge or at our website, restoration-church.ca. Send us a message and we would love to hear from you. We are going through a series called Layers. And the corn, Kat, thank you so much for the corn. Uh, who was, it was her idea to peel back layers of corn. And I love the illustration because it perfectly does illustrate the theme of Galatians, which is uh, as we've gone through, we, the, the, the goal or the hope is that we would peel back layers every single Sunday to see the gospel for what it is. If you tried to take a bite out of a cob of corn without peeling it first, how would it taste? I've never, I've never tasted it, so I don't really know. You're supposed to peel back to get to the actual fruit that's inside. And the same thing with the gospel. We all have distortions. You know, we all are, have things that distort our view of the gospel, whether that's religious experience, whether that's assumptions we make because of the culture that we live in, whatever it is, it could be a, could be a plethora of things. We fight those things every day in order to get to the gospel, to see it clearly. Every single day, my kids will pick up my glasses, even though I tell them not to. They will pick up my glasses, and when I go to, if you have kids and you wear glasses, what happens when you go to put them on? They're smudgy every single time. My kids' dirty, smudgy hands are all over them, and I get fingerprints all over my glasses every time. Every morning, I have to wipe off my glasses so that I see clearly again. And it's the same way how we approach the gospel. We do not rely on yesterday's grace. We need a fresh perspective of the gospel every single day. Every, especially every single Sunday. That's why we pull back layers every single Sunday and remind ourselves, oh yeah, this is what the gospel is. We need fresh grace every day, especially on Sundays. Remember, we've said this a few times. What if growth and maturity as a Christian in the Christian life, we sometimes assume it's certain achievements that you make. So you go to Bible school and then you become a pastor and it's like, wow, now you're a mature Christian. You know, certain achievements that we make in life. What if growth and maturity in a Christian life wasn't about the achievements you make? But what if growth as a Christian was about how clearly you see that God brings us through things in life, some good things and some difficult things, in order to peel back those distortions so that we'll get a clear vision of what the gospel is, so that we can see it and taste it for what it really is. Paul, who writes this book, a man named Paul who writes this book, Galatians, he was a religious man. His life had been turned upside down by this thing called the gospel. And he didn't have some unimportant experience. You know, he heard it at a youth retreat and was like, he, was, he, he made a commitment and then it really didn't make a difference in his life. No, it wasn't like he was putting his toe in the water and like, okay, that feels pretty good. No, he jumped in. There was no part of his life that wasn't affected by this message called the Gospel. He was in Christ. Every part of his life changed to the point that he was compelled to go and plant churches, not because he was trying to be some super Christian or that he was, you know, I, 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 if I do these things, I'm going to be, I'm going to grow or I'm going to, I'm going to mature in my life. No, he was compelled to go just because of the way the gospel had affected his life. So he goes to plant churches in a region called Galatia, 
with towns, if you follow it in Acts 14, I think it's Acts 13, 14 maybe, actually 12, 13, 14, he goes through these re- this region of Galatia and towns called Derby and Lystra and Iconium, all these little towns. It'd be like, I don't know, stopping at like Glen Morris and planting a church in Glen Morris, and then you stop over in Paris and you plant a church in Paris, and then you stop over in Brantford. But no one wants to stop in Brantford, so we probably skipped that one. And then, sorry, Joella, I think you live in Brantford. My bad, my bad, my bad. You go to Flamborough, right? You don't live in Flamborough, do you, Scott? No, you know. Flam- is Flamborough even a thing? I see a sign that says Flamborough, and it's just farm fields. There's no town of Flamborough, is there? It's like an area. It's like North Dumfries. There's, they see a sign called North Dumfries, but there's no North Dumfries. It's just fields. Anyway, that was not part of this message. But he stops at places like Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, and he's compelled to go and tell them about this gospel and he experiences much pushback. If you follow along in Acts 14, which you don't have to now, but if you look in Acts 14, he experiences much push, pushback, especially from Jewish people who basically were, was him before, that, but he had changed because of the gospel. So th- these Jewish people who had not been changed by the gospel, he experiences pushback and they incite the crowd so much in this place called Lystra, they stone him and then it says they dragged his limp, lifeless body out of the city. They think he's dead. And then what happens? The disciples go around him, and Paul just pops back up again. And what does he do? Goes right back in. I mean, only crazy people do stuff like that. Only crazy people that are compelled by a message that is even more important than their very health and life. People don't do that just to be like super Christian. They don't do that just to impress people. They do that because they've been compelled by a message that's changed every part of their life. And we would be amiss, though, if we, saw, if we looked at that, like in Acts 14, when he pops back up and he goes and preaches this message back to those same people who were against him. We'd be amiss if this was like, you know, those YouTube videos of, of, of evangel- like ev- evangelists or preachers, and, and the title's always this, this, like, this catchy title that's like, preacher preaches a message to stupid college students. You know what I mean? To try to get you to listen to the message. Like, wow, look at him. He showed them with all his knowledge and intellect to these dumb college students. We'd be amiss if we viewed it as that. Paul was simply, I've seen life. I've seen real life. I've seen it. And I want you to see the same thing that I've seen. So Paul and Barnabas, they continue to plant churches. And all of these churches in the region of Galatia, but the fight isn't over. There's always a fight for the gospel, so hence, Galatians. This fight is not some culture war. It's not for a political scheme. It's not, for, it's not a fight for church power or to sing the songs that you like to sing. It's a fight for the gospel. That's what we do. We fight for the gospel, always. Every Sunday we fight for the gospel. That's what our Bible studies are doing right now. We're fighting for the gospel. As we continue to take, peel back layers, we fight for what is the, the real gospel. And that's what we do. And if we don't do that, we will fight. We all fight for something in a church. And if we don't fight for the gospel, what are we going to do if we don't, as a church, we'll start fighting each other over frivolous things that don't matter if we don't fight for the gospel. And that play in this passage that Karen read, and you're going to have to, you're going to have, not apologize, you're going to have to forgive me. 
There's way too much in this passage. I don't know what I was thinking when I picked this passage. There's like about five different sermons you could preach from this passage. So I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to preach one, and I'm going to try and keep it short. Uh, so you have, to, you have to forgive me for this, okay? I'm not going to cover everything. Hopefully, in your Bible studies, you cover more than, I, than I'm going to here. I'm not going to do it justice. But at play here in this passage are, two, are things called covenants. Covenants were agreements made between two parties. So here's, here's some things that I agree to, and here's some things that you agree to, and then there were, there's the consequences if we break that agreement. That's what a covenant was. And in this passage, the one's called the promise, and one's called the law. They were both covenants, though. Agreements that were made between God and people. The promise of Abraham is found, if you go back to Genesis 12, which you don't have to, in Genesis 15, we, we looked at, we did, we did a, a series through Abraham back this past winter and covered some of these things. But we covered this covenant or this promise of Abraham, and I don't have to tell too much because Cale did such a great job presenting before communion. This promise of Abraham says in Genesis 12 and then later in Genesis 15, it says God promises to bring blessing, which was a symbol of life and salvation to the world. And he says, I'm going to do that through you, Abraham. That's my covenant. That's my agreement with you. I'm going to give you a line. And through you, all people on earth will be blessed. There will be life and salvation for all people. Or the offer anyway. I'm going to do it through you. I'm going to bring salvation. Those are the distinctives of promise. It's rooted in a future hope, and it fuels your present action so that Abraham was guided along by faith in that promise, even though he couldn't see it right in front of him. It was a hope that was anchored in something in the future. It's similar to what we believe, or what we say in weddings. Vows in weddings. And I'm a big stickler on this. When it comes to, Nikki and I do a lot of premarital counseling. I've heard a lot of wedding vows and I'm sitting in the chair. But they're not vows. They're nice things. But they're not vows. What's a vow? A promise. It's not, I I love you isn't a vow. It's great, but it's not a vow. What's a vow? I will love you. I will be with you. I will forgive you. I don't, can't tell you how many weddings I've sat through, and it's like, wow, that, was, that sounded really great. Well, they say it's time for the vows, and then they share. It sounds really great, but then it's, I'm sitting there, I'm like, there was not a single promise in that. It was all nice and everything, but it was like, how you feel right now? Like, that's not a vow. That's what the promise of Abraham was. It was a vow for things that I will do, regardless of what happens from now until then. I'm, I'm going to do those things, for better or for worse. For richer, for poorer. That's what, it, that's what happens in a wedding. Genesis 15, God reiterates this vow in a very grotesque way. I mean, the ancient world, is, this, is, this is like far out from our world. What we would do is very grotesque, so I apologize. What would happen when people made vows is they would actually get animals. And they'd cut them in half. And then lay both halves on each side of them. I'm not lying. That's what they do in the ancient world. Okay, they would cut the animals in half, lay them on each side, and then the two people who made a vow, what would they do? They'd walk between those animals. It's a very visual, grotesque way of saying, if I break this vow, then what? Let, me be, let this be done, what, 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 the, what happened to these animals? Let it be done to me, if I break this vow. That was the point. 
But the amazing thing about Genesis 15 is that God actually stops Abraham. They don't both walk through those animals. Just God does. By saying, God was saying, it doesn't even matter if you hold up your end of the deal, I'll hold up mine. That's the promise of Abraham. On the other side, something called a law. 430 years later, as it says in the passage, this is what I mean, the law, which came in verse 17, 430 years afterward, it was something called a law. We've heard a lot about it as we've discussed it, so I don't want to like go, go like back into it again. But it was this thing given to Moses and all of God's people, it's God's moral code. These were the commands that you follow. If the promise of Abraham, God was saying, I will, the law was saying, well, here's the things you shall do. It was God's moral code. If, and, and it was different from God walking through and saying, you know, I'm gonna, even if you don't hold up your end of the deal, I'll hold up mine. The law was, if you do these things, well, then yeah, you'll be blessed. But if you don't, God actually says you'll be cursed. You won't experience the life that I promised if you don't do these things. That was the law. If you break them, then you won't get the blessing. It was conditional on their obedience. And there was much, this caused much confusion. Because the, people, the, the Jewish people thought, okay, well, this was the promise of Abraham that happened thousands of years ago. And then 430 years later, it was almost like the software up, update. You know the software update you get on your phone? What's that supposed to be? It's supposed to be an improvement on what was experienced. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it destroys your phone. But it's supposed to be an improvement on what was agreed in the beginning. And there was confusion of like, Okay, are we, supposed to like, are we supposed to be law people or promise people? And I think what would the idea of these Jewish people who, who had come to faith in Jesus, but they were still rooted in their Jewishness, okay, they believe, okay, we believe the promise was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. He's the one who brought life and salvation to the world. Praise the Lord. But since the law came next, it not, just, it, it not replaces, but it improves it. It's almost like, Okay, you have to, you have to, you believe in Jesus, sure, and then you'll have the promise, but then you also have to do a whole bunch of other things. Like the law said, I mean, it came after. So does the law annul the promise? And that's kind of Paul's point. He says, no, it doesn't. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God to make it void. So the promise still stands. Again, I'm flying through this. But in verse 21, then, the question is, okay, so they, are they at odds? Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And Paul says, well, certainly not. So what's the problem then? Here's, I think, the problem in the passage that he's addressing. The question is, what is maturity? What does it mean to be a mature Christian? And what does it mean to be an immature Christian? So I believe the confusion was this. Okay, I believe in Jesus, but you've got to do some, some things in order to be a mature Christian. That was the problem with Peter a couple, a couple of weeks ago that we looked at a few weeks ago, where it was like, okay, here's, the, here's these people that they believed in Jesus. That's great. I'll sit with them. But here, oh, here come, the, here come the mature ones, right, who have done all of these things in order to attain their maturity as a Christian. I mean, we believe the same things. We assume pastors are mature because, I mean, they've been to Bible school. They've got an MDiv. 
We assume the Bible study leader is mature because, I mean, hey, well, I mean, he seems to know what they're talking about. He's, they've got a Bible study. He or she's got a Bible study. There's certain things that we, we assume or expect someone to do in order to be a mature Christian. So the problem is, what is maturity? Here's the, here's the point, and I have to summarize it like this. A reliance on the law or good living to attain God's blessing, like I have to do some, th- some things in order to attain God's blessing, a reliance on the law, it's not a sign of maturity. It's the opposite. It's actually a sign of immaturity. A reliance on the law is not a sign of maturity. It's, it's actually the opposite. It's a sign of immaturity. Karen read this. Again, I'm flying through, but verse 23 and 24 is an important passage. Verse 23 and 24 says this. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, and it imprisoned us until the coming faith would be revealed. And he says this in verse 24. So then the law was our guardian. The word guardian is one who instructs, it teaches looks after you. That's what a guardian was. I mean, it could be, it could be defined as a, a, a babysitter or a parent, even. They, they watch over you. Parent, I'm going to ask parents in the room. You don't have to answer. How do you teach things to your kids? What do you do? Especially when they're young. How do you teach things to kids? You know, when your kid's three years old, do you sit them down and be like, okay, here's what's really good for you. And then we expect you to follow those things. And then you just send them off. And they do all of those things perfectly well. Karen's saying yes. That was her experience with children. So well done, Eli and Esme. Uh, that was not my experience. What do we do as parents when we teach our children things they should do and things they shouldn't do. Yeah, you set boundaries. And what happens when you cross a boundary? You get punished for it. There's punishment for breaking the law. That's what we do as parents. Right, Ryan? <laughs> thumb up. Thumb up, Aaron. That's what you do. When there's immaturity, when there's a little kid, you have to institute rewards and punishments in order for them to understand what they need to do and what they shouldn't do. Man, I've had a lot of groundings in my life to understand that there's punishments for breaking the law. We've all experienced it. In fact, we need it. You know, my, my mom's famous words... Wait until your dad gets home. Because it was game over when dad got home. When my mom said, wait until your dad gets home, it was like, oh, this is, we are, we're done. We're done. And we got punished for breaking the law. We actually needed it. Because there's an underlying foundation that we need when we're immature. You know what it is? Even before correction, fear. And I'm not talking about fear like in a terrifying sense, like hiding in your closet type sense. But you need fear in a good way. And again, some of you maybe grew up in a home where there was abuse or exasperation. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about 
an acknowledgement and submission to the authority that makes the rules. Every time you drive down the 401 and you see every car, all of a sudden a flash of brake lights, brake light, what, 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 what is everyone seeing? There's a cruiser sitting on, sitting on the side of the road so everyone slows down. That's what's happening. Everyone's afraid of getting a ticket, of breaking the law. They're afraid of that. Every time you're studying, one of the reasons you study, I'm assuming, unless you guys are better than me, wasn't just so that you'll be knowledgeable and share that knowledge. What were you afraid of? Failing the test. You're afraid of failing the test. Every grounding you ever got as a kid, or worse, was supposed to teach you something that's good. I remember camping with my nephew. Uh, and I won't tell you his name, but he, he uh, I remember camping with my nephew. And, well, my, my brother was there and his, his family. And uh, there's the campsite, but then there's the road right, right outside the campsite. And he's like two years old, right? And the kids, camping for a two-year-old is like heaven. You can do it, you can get dirty, you can roll around in the dirt, no one cares. You just do whatever you want. It's kind of like me. I like going camping because then you just roll around in the dirt and no one cares. So it doesn't really change. But I remember my, my, my brother and sister-in-law, man, they had to have the same conversation over and over and over and over again. He just didn't get it. Because he kept running. And the problem is there's a road right outside the campsite. And if the parents weren't around, that kid had no sense that there could be, a, a, especially when you're camping, a big truck coming down that road. Eventually, what did they have to do? They had to punish him. So they sat him in a chair and said, if you do this again, we're going to take away your toys. So he did it again. So they took away his toys. And he's sitting there screaming because he doesn't understand what does he need to learn? Fear. Like a respect for the authority that's over him because what he needed to learn was good. He didn't understand it, but he needed it. In fact, the punishment was far less severe than going through with what, letting him do whatever he wanted to do. That's why I think Proverbs says, at the beginning of Proverbs, when he hears, here's the moral code of God, it says, the beginning of wisdom is what? It's the fear of the Lord. That's where it begins. An acknowledgement that following God is good. And I should do it. That's where it begins. That's what the law represents. Now, is that the end game of teaching, parents? I hope you don't expect when your kid's 25 to still be giving out rewards and punishments. Okay? <laughs> I hope so. At some point, the kid grows up. They mature. And we all know that there's, when, that there's something wrong when an adult <laughs> sits a kid down in the camp chair and takes away their toys because they're afraid of him disobeying what they're saying. Right? That'd be, that's weird. That's not for an adult. That, okay, for a kid, for someone who's immature, not for someone who's mature. 
See, living solely under the fear of God, living by the law, is like repeatedly slamming on the brakes to avoid punishment rather than admitting, I might have a driving problem. Maybe I'm going too fast. Some of you haven't crossed that line yet. And if you drive by my house really fast, I am that angry father who's yelling at you through my door. See, the law, the fear of God, wasn't supposed to stay there. Where's it supposed to drive you? To the Savior. I got a problem. I need to be saved. It's supposed to drive you to Jesus, to the promise for life and salvation, to the blessing that was always there, waiting for you to respond. Because it doesn't matter how many times you failed, it was always there waiting for you to respond. It was still, it wasn't annulled, it was still active. Verse 25 says, Now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. We don't live for God anymore out of coercion because Jesus has come. We live for God now out of a trusting love for our Father. That's why we live for God. Maybe the greatest attitude or the most mature attitude toward the law is gratitude for it. It's not a fear or a coercion of it. It's a gratitude for it. Colin was just telling us yesterday for those, the guys who were hiking with us yesterday morning. He said it was years, like 20 years for his son to finally come to him and, and telling a story about when he was a teenager and Colin having to say, no, you're not going driving out in the freezing rain and him being ticked. What? You're not going to let me drive, with, go out with my friends? No, it's right. he didn't understand. It took 20 years finally for his son to be like, you know what, Dad? You were right. And I'm really thankful for that. See, that's our attitude toward the law. We're not afraid of it. We don't follow it because we expect, like we're afraid of some sort of punishment. We're grateful for it. Because it drove us to Jesus. Our relationship with God before was reward, punishment, and fear. It was undergirded by fear. Now it's undergirded by a loving relationship. 1 John 4, 15 to 18 is one of my favorite verses. You don't have to go there, but man, if you want to go there and underline it, you probably heard, maybe heard these verses before. 1 John 4, 15 to 18 says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. This is what it says. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. And I love this verse. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. See, in our immaturities, our relationship with God is undergirded with fear, but in our maturity, our relationship with God is undergirded in love. That's why we follow him. I got to end this. Verse 26 is a really important verse. And I, man, I can't do it justice. But for it says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. You're all sons of God through faith. Now, you know, sometimes you might think, well, why does it just say sons? Can it say sons and daughters? And even some more modern translations. Well, when it talks about, you know, when there's a greeting, it says, 
uh, brothers, and they've added brothers and sisters, which I'm, I'm okay with, because the, the sense is, wasn't just a greeting to just the brothers. Now we, you know, it was to everyone that was there. However, for this, you can't change it, because sons were the ones who received the heir, the inheritance. Don't get mad at me, that's just the way it was. Okay, sons were the one who received the inheritance. And sons were the heirs, the heirs of the promise of Abraham to receive blessing, the salvation in life over every area of their life. You see, maturity is not being a pastor. Maturity is not not going to dances. Maturity is not circumcision. Maturity is faith. Confidence in the righteousness of Jesus on your behalf. You know, this was first displayed to me. There was a pastor who came to our church when I was later on in high school. And I kind of grew up kind of assuming that mature Christians, they didn't go to dances. There was a bunch of things that you just didn't do in order to be a mature Christian. And that's what I just assumed it was. And then this person came into my life and sat me down. And man, this person had a faith. A confidence in God. He's like, I don't care about all those other things. Do you believe in God? Do you have faith in God for your life? That's maturity. Oh, I don't have a lot of time. Here's what the promise does. I, I, I'm not going to do it justice. Here's what the pro- promise does. It releases you from a cycle of shame. It releases you from a cycle of shame. This past Thursday morning, here's a plug, this past Thursday morning at 6.30 in the morning online, which you're all invited to, by the way, to join Restoration Church Prayer every Thursday morning at 6.30. Sometimes, like, eight people join. Sometimes none people join. (laughs) However, this this would go completely against what I'm talking about if it's guilting you just to do something. However, the invitation is there. If you'd like to join me in prayer at 6.30 on Thursday mornings, let me know, and you'll get the link every, every Thursday morning. We're going through, though, Psalm 78, which is the second longest psalm in the book of Psalms. I've never really gone through it before. Psalm 78 is basically a repeated cycle of failure. That's what it is. It's one of the most depressing psalms you'll ever read. Because basically the history of God's people. And it goes through, it's like, I gave, God basically says in Psalm 78, I gave you this, and you took it. Then you complained, and were ungrateful, and you turned from me. And then I punished you. And then you came back to me. And then you did the same thing again. And you failed. And then I punished you. And then you came back to me again. And then you failed, and I punished you. Like, that's, that's the definition of living by the law. It's a cycle of shame that is def- defined by your own failure. There's no, there's, no hope, there's no hope beyond it. That's just your life. It's just a cycle of failure. How many, how many, how many times have you rededicated your life because you, you, you've been so ashamed of your life, you're rededicated and it lasts like a week, and you think, i got to rededicate my life again. 
See, the promise of God is that you're not supposed to, we don't live our life like that. It's confidence in what Jesus has done, not that you're going to somehow get better after this constant, continuous cycle of shame. Man, I can't tell you how many times I've gone forward to rededicate my life, but that was a mark of not my maturity, but the opposite, my immaturity, because I didn't have confidence in Jesus yet. There's a dreaded hopelessness in the, the, the cycle when it says in verse 10 of Psalm 78, they didn't keep his covenant. That's the law. They refused to walk according to his law. Without the promise, it's hopeless. How many of us live our faith, more so religion, that way? Not only does it release you from a cycle of shame, it releases you from an identity of shame. Verse 28 is a much, I, I, again, I'm not going to do it justice, but it says this, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither man nor fe- male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. The reason Paul puts that in there is because there, there are things in there that people were ashamed to be. They didn't carry as much value. It doesn't mean that they, didn't, they no longer exist, that males and females don't, no longer exist, that slaves or masters no longer exist, or that even Jews and Gentiles no longer exist, or else we can like throw away the first two chapters, if that's what it's saying. No, they still exist. But the reality of this is that in this church, to be a Greek, not a Jew, carried some shame. It's not as much value. To be a female and not a male was an area of shame because there's not as much value. That's the way it was. To be a slave, not a master, was shameful. It's not as much value. What Paul is saying is because of the promise of Jesus. It releases you from this identity of shame. You're all one in Christ Jesus. You all carry value. And maturity isn't defined by whether you're higher up on the economic totem pole, by what gender you have, or, or even, you know, where you serve in church. That's not where maturity is found. Maturity is found in confidence in Jesus. If Christ is enough from last week, then being in Christ, you are also enough as you are. And what you are is no lesser value to the kingdom of God. I was reading a story. I'll close with this. I was reading a story about someone who, was, who, who seemingly was given no value in the land that she lived in Southeast Asia. Thank you, Jared, for working for Open Doors, because, man, I read these stories all the time, and they're fantastic. Her name is Dia. She's a Christian from a Muslim background who lives in Southeast Asia. She's given no value in her life. Just a nobody says, from a very young age, allow me to read the story. From a very young age, I had the desire to please God, she says. I thought the best way to please Allah would be to follow Islam as best as I could. So I learned the prayers, and as a small child, I'd walk to the mosque at 4 a.m. for morning prayer. At six years old, I started keeping the 30-day fast of Ramadan and asked my parents to send me to a religious school to learn more. By the time I was 12, I knew the whole Quran by heart, and I was doing all this because I truly wanted Allah to be happy with me, she said, when she was 15. Dia was raped by a very well-respected man. She didn't tell anyone what happened, but after three months, it was clear that the rape led to a pregnancy. 
she thought she was a sinner going to hell because she'd been raped and become pregnant when she was not married. That was a crime where she lived. It was a crime for which she was sentenced to lashes and imprisonment. They took me to the Islamic court where I was tried. The judgment was 100 lashes and two years of prison. By the way, the man, of course, nothing's happening to him. First, a guard beat me with leather and iron as people stood by watching. They broke my legs so I couldn't stand, but they dragged me to my feet anyway and gave me a hundred lashes, and after that, I was put, they put me in prison. Dia's crime was considered one of shame. Her time in prison was more like an exile in a remote part of the country, and although she was not allowed to leave that area, she did have a small degree of freedom. Lamini continued, During her imprisonment, Dia developed malaria and was taken to a hospital. Her situation just seemed to get worse, However, it was while she was in that hospital that she had an encounter with a Christian who would change her life forever. I was taken outside the ward for an injection when a foreign man asked me why I was a prisoner. He seemed very curious about my presence there. We had a conversation of only five to seven minutes and no more than that. And then I was back inside. The man was a Christian from another country. God had called him to go to Dia's country and share the gospel, even though such a ministry is completely illegal. He had only been allowed to stay in the country for two weeks, but during that short time, he was able to meet Dia. Later, when she was out of the hospital and back in prison, he managed to send her a Bible. She says this, I was so angry with this man. How could he send this, how could he send this, meaning the Bible, to prison? If somebody had seen me with this book, I would have received even more punishment, and I was so worried. So I thought the best thing would be to burn it. Dia intended to burn the Bible when no one's watching. I was going to burn the book so that no one would ever know I had it. But as I lit the match, I realized the book is forbidden in my country, and I don't think anybody in my country had ever really seen the book. I believed I was already a sinner going to hell, so I thought one more sin wouldn't make any difference <laughs> by reading the Bible, and I decided to read it before I burnt it. When she opened, the first, she, when she opened it, the first words she read were the, song, were the words of Psalm 139, verse 16. Man, what a spirit moment that she read she turned to that page your eyes saw my unformed body all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be after that she couldn't put it down for the next nine months i read the bible every day i read things i had never heard before about a god who was loving and forgiving i read about a life of the lord jesus all the things i read were new and although there was nobody to explain anything to me the spirit was there and i understood that the lord jesus is my savior and my god one night shortly after, Dia had a dream. I was in a very dark place, and then there was a light coming from far away, so I started walking toward the light, and the light started spreading around me. I looked back and saw the darkness, a dark hole far away, and I realized I was standing in front of the door where the light was coming in, and at that point, I could choose to either enter the door or go back to the darkness. I decided to walk through the door, and as I entered, the place was full of light, brightness like no light on this earth. It was so comforting. I felt a hand on my head, and I heard a voice say to me, from this day on, I'll be with you, and I'll never leave you. Nine months after finding the Bible, Dia's time in prison ended. She returned to her family. However, she could not keep her new faith a secret for long. Remember, this is, a, this is a girl who was full of shame. After I came back, I knew I should not be speaking about what was happening in my heart and my life, but it was coming out in diverse ways. She soon told her parents about what she had discovered while in prison. I told them about the dream, about what was written in the book, about God, about the life, about the afterlife, about forgiveness, but they were outraged. Half the time they were shouting at me, and I don't even think they even heard Leaving Islam is a grave betrayal in Dia's country. It's more than just being a traitor. A murderer is better than that. It's the worst thing that a person can do. The person does not deserve to live. 
Dia's family disowned her, and soon everyone in her community had heard that she was a follower of Jesus. They thought she'd lost her mind. Religious leaders questioned her. She said, I knew I must not say what I was saying. I knew the consequences, but despite myself, I still spoke of what the Lord had done for me. This resulted in me going to prison for a second time, and this time was far worse. They would mock me and say, Jesus will come and save you. Sound familiar? Eventually, Dia was released from prison and with help moved to another country. She said, if I had stayed, I don't think I'd still be alive. After leaving her home country, Dia went to church, studied, worked, started a whole new life in another place. She missed her home and family terribly, even though they still would not answer her calls. However, as time went by, they eventually started to communicate, and she was even able to share her faith with them. Today, Dia lives in a country near to her home country, serving others through hospitality. People from my country come to me for medical treatment because there are no specialist hospitals at all in my country, she explains. People might come here for help with anything from a sinus infection to cancer. Most of the visitors are strange and I open my house for them and provide free food. They all know that I'm a follower of Jesus. I cook and clean and bandage their wounds and take care of them. I treat them as my own family. At times it can be challenging because even though they eat my food, they will not, they will not want to eat with me because I'm a follower of Jesus. And in those moments, my love dries up. I do, not have any lo- I do not have any love, but my love is not good enough anyway. It's God's love, she says. He shows mercy and love to, this, to them. In this way, Dia can share the good news of the love of Jesus with people from her own country, despite her country being completely closed to the gospel. Your prayers and support help make the... Anyways, it goes on. She says, I've been so encouraged by their love and their heart for the people. So, that's the story of Dia. A a young girl who was defined by shame, but was saved by the promise of God. You know, we think some, like, big-time pastors are mature because they're good speakers. Maturity is confidence in Jesus. Let me pray. God in heaven, thank you so much for your your word. Ah, We're not defined by our shame, by our failure. We're defined by the promise. The covenant that you made with us, that only you walked through, says, Aaron, it doesn't matter what happens from here to there. What matters is that I made this promise and I will keep it. Lord, I pray that if there are some in this room right now who are defining their life by their sin, by their failure, and by their shame, may they turn in faith to you. May they turn in faith to you. Lord, we're grateful for your law. We're grateful for your commandments. We follow those things. We hold on to them. They are life to us. They are only life because you you brought life because of what you have done, not because of what 